it's a, just a brutal combination. It hit my knees again and I just sobbed and sobbed and sobbed in the middle of the dirt and the ditch at the side of the road. We had only gone 35 kilometers of the 70 kilometer section of bad road. There were times where we were down to uh, five kilometers an hour, 10 kilometers an hour. And I was, that's all I could do, just keep upright and just keep rotating those wheels, just one rotation at a time kind of thing. I shut my communication system off. I actually disconnected it from my helmet because I don't want him listening to this. Her motorcycle was on the ground. She was seated a few paces beyond that on the ground with her back to me and just crying. I couldn't help it. I just, I was done. She's right. I didn't exactly know what to do at that point. Today we have Season 1, Part 7 of Adventure Rider Radio's exclusive moto travel series, Southward Chronicles. On this episode, the duo are flattened, literally, by the winds of Patagonia. They encounter wild animals in a place they least expect it. They blow up their travel budget completely, yet experience beauty that they say they've never seen the likes of before. Jeremy falls out of love with his KLR 650 and so much more. Southward Chronicles, the ongoing saga of two riders traveling together on separate but parallel journeys. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Before we get started, I want to thank these fine companies that helped get this episode out today. Max BMW Motorcycles, outfitting adventure riders since 2002. They've got 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. Sign up for their e-rider newsletter. It's free, maxbmw.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com. I'm Sam Manikin. Simon. Justin Vince. Simon Pavey. Brian Field. Helga Pedersen. Jocelyn Snow. Carl Parker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Grant Johnson. Jimmy Lewis. Elspeth Jim Hart. Jansen. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA. Comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters. Cyclepump.com. It's wind pressure that powers the MotoBreeze chain oiler. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers the oil to a felt pad on your swing arm. No nozzles near your sprockets. One ounce of oil gets 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometers. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets. MotoBreeze.com. Now, this style of coverage has never been done on any podcast before. It's Adventure Rider Radio's exclusive travel series, Southward Chronicles, the ongoing saga of two riders traveling together on separate but parallel journeys. A man, a woman, a BMW F700 and a KLR 650, a couple, two vastly different riders and personalities traveling together with a common goal to get to Ushuaia and back. 
They have all the usual stress of travel-related things, border crossings, accommodations, delays, problems, all that stuff. But on top of that, a relationship from a long-distance one back home, living in different cities, never having spent much continuous time together, to a full-on partnership, helping each other as needed, working together to overcome challenges, living, eating, and loving together 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Now, so far, we've traveled with them from Alberta, Canada, down through Mexico, South Central America, crossing the Darien Gap on the Stallrat sailing ship and into South America. They each ride their own motorcycles, as I said, carry all their own gear so that if they were separated or if they decided that relationship wasn't working, they could go their separate ways. Now, last time we spoke with them, they were in striking distance of their halfway goal. That's Ushuaia. <laughs> My name is Jeremy Craker. I am traveling with my girlfriend, Elle West, from Canada to Argentina, and now we're on our way back. I'm on a Kawasaki KLR650. My name is Elle, and I'm traveling, like Jeremy said, from Canada together with Jeremy. I'm on a BMW 700GS. We have made it from Canada down to Ushuaia, the southern tip of Argentina, and now we're heading north. Elle and Jeremy, great to sit down and talk with you once again. Thanks, Thanks. Yep. Always a pleasure. So last time we spoke, you were in Argentina. Now you're in... We're in Buenos Aires right now. Oh, you're in yep. Buenos We've Aires. Actually, yep. mm-hmm. We went as far south as we could in Argentina, and then uh, we did a little extra trip, which we could talk about, and now we're back heading north slightly. Okay, so um, you're really, you're on the return trip then? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. We still have some new ground to cover, like we want to go to Paraguay and Uruguay and all that kind of stuff. But um, the return journey has begun. We're technically starting northwards now. Yeah. Wow. yeah. Okay. So I want to talk about that. But first, let's talk about um, Argentina to where you are now. Um, so what were some major things that you had to deal with coming, getting from Argentina to where you are now? Well, last time we spoke to you, uh, we were heading south on Ruta 40, a famous road. And then um, it's also famous for wind and um, and some rough gravel sections. So we encountered both wind and difficult gravel uh, at the same time, which is a really bad combination. This is an area that's really well known for this, isn't it? This is something that everybody sort of dreads and talks about. And some people don't really believe. Um, Can you Mm -hmm. give like a real good description of what this is really like? It's hard to believe, I think, even if it is described well, because many people had told us about it. We spoke one-on-one to friends who had already been to Patagonia and told us about the winds, but it's still hard to actually contemplate, to understand until you feel the effects of it. There were days that were not so bad as others, and there were times of the day where the wind is more ferocious than others, but there were times I literally had troubles standing on my own two feet. Like walking was incredibly challenging. If I stood with my feet together, you would get blown right over. Like the wind is constantly trying to shove you down and wrestle you all day long. Mm -hmm. On a motorcycle, even on paved roads, like you can get your tires to grip and lean in. So it's doable, but it's frustrating and tiring and it's maddening. It's like trying to drive while a monkey is on your shoulders, trying to yank your helmet off your head continuously the whole time you're riding, just pulling and yanking. And oh, I don't have a beak on my helmet. It's pretty aerodynamic, but still it's shoving, wrestling all day long, fighting that wind. 
And then you combine that wind with uh, really horrible gravel. And when I say horrible gravel, I mean thick, soft gravel, and it's all round stones, like it's all river rock. So even in the best of situations, if you didn't have the wind, that road would be bad enough. You'd kind of swim around a little bit. You know what it's like when you're on rough gravel. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when you add a side wind that is gusting at 100 kilometers an hour, and that's not an exaggeration, um, it's a, just a brutal combination. And there were times where we were down to uh, five kilometers an hour, 10 kilometers an hour. And I was, that's all I could do, just keep upright and just keep rotating those wheels, just one rotation at a time kind of thing. But so. slow doesn't necessarily help. Like the problem is you need a little bit of momentum in order to give her and fight back a little bit and lean into that wind. But that's impossible to do when you're in gravel and trying to stay in the track where the gravel is um, thinner and not so thick as it is between the tire tracks. The wind just does not let you stay there. It's shoving you off into the deep gravel, if not shoving you into oncoming traffic or right off the road. So that was my thought. Well, if we just go slow, I'll manage. And Jeremy just said gusting uh, 100 kilometers. That's the worst. Yeah. A steady wind you can sort of deal with and lean into. But so yeah. describe gusting. Yeah, that's just right. So you can find a tire track to follow if you're lucky. On this one section of Route of 40, there's a 70-kilometer section that everyone described as being brutal. Um, so you get yourself into a tire track, and you're okay, and then all of a sudden the wind shuts off, right? So you're shouldering into the wind, you're leaning into it, <laughs> and then all of a sudden there's no wind. And then so you kind of get blown or sucked rather to the side of the road. And then you're in another rut that you weren't expecting. And then the wind kicks up up again and pushes you over into another rut. And that's if the wind doesn't just come out and like sweep the knee, kind of like, remember the Karate Kid, that movie? I know it's a dated (laughs) reference, but yeah, the wind could just, it feels like it could just come and sweep your tires out from underneath you. Mm -hmm. Now, is this a route that you're going to have to take back as well? Nope. <laughs> nope. We avoided it. Um, so we went down the route of 40 and all the way to Ushuaia and on the way back, because we were kind of in a rush, we had gone to the Antarctic and then we were going to meet a friend in Buenos Aires. We were in a bit of a hurry. So we just went uh, the route of three, uh, route three all the way back to Buenos Aires, which is paved, still incredibly windy but you can deal with it if yeah. you're on pavement. So was the route of 40 thing, the, the thing, the reason that you took that, was it just to, to say you've done it? It seems like the way to go that was efficient to some degree, but not so efficient as the Route 3, which is paved and easier to travel, but um, not very scenic. There's not a whole lot to see. Route 40 connects us with some beautiful spots like Mount Fitzroy near El Shell 10 and uh, Perito Moreno Glacier, which we definitely wanted to see on the way down. If you don't take the Route 40, you're not going to see some of those things. Mm. Yeah, it's uh, top marks for scenery and for routing. Um, like El said, there's more efficient ways to get down to Ushuaia, but the route of 40 or route 40, I guess, um, just absolutely stunningly beautiful. And the horrible sections were short-ish. Yeah, so. we thought 70 kilometers. I can deal with that. So what if it takes all day? I'll manage. I'll just go <laughs> slow. I didn't understand how hard it would be with the wind combining in the gravel sections. Yeah. Well, and that's so, what I was thinking. I was thinking we, we really should, I, I need to ask you about the beauty of it because we're just talking about, you know, how tough it was and how the, those horrible sections were bad. I don't want to focus on that. Um, it's interesting to hear, but you were there for a reason. Obviously, there was some, some scenery that, to, to, that made the whole thing worthwhile. Oh, yeah. 
and the wildlife too. Um, I didn't realize, like I didn't do very much research for this trip, but I wasn't prepared for the wildlife that we saw, like flamingos and rees, which are like ostrich-like birds. And um, there's guanacos everywhere and um, kind of a llama-like creature. And, you know, the scenery gets a little bit monotonous sometimes, but when you're seeing all this wildlife, it breaks it up nicely. And then when you get into the mountains, and we went to um, El Chalpen, everyone has their photo. Meet people who've been down this area, have their motorcycle in front of this big mountain that really sticks out above the rest, and that's Mount Fitzroy. And we went, and it was cloudy. We took a couple pictures, but it was most of the top of the mountain was hidden in the clouds. We stayed an extra day and went and did some hiking to get to the famous viewpoints to see this mountain. And it was cloudy and covered over, and you couldn't really see it. And, oh, well, we tried. What are you going to do? And we leave on the third day. And as we're driving away from the town, the most fabulous view just opened up. And there were no clouds, and the mountain was crystal clear. So we spent probably half an hour or more just on the road, taking pictures of each other with this mountain behind us. It was beautiful. And that was, and that was after the day that we struggled so hard with that 70-kilometer section. Um, There's a couple sections, yeah. One was tough and we were tired. And then the next one, we actually ended up sleeping in the ditch. That was a day to talk about, I think. Oh, really? Like yeah. sleeping well, in, in the wind? In the yeah. ditch in the wind on the side of the road in the dirt. Oh, yeah. And it's why? filthy. Like even in the town, it was filthy because the wind blows. Well, for me, um, Jeremy said, okay, this section is tough. We know it. We already did a 70-kilometer section that was gravel and tough, but we did it. We'll manage. We'll go slow. If we need to just do the whole thing in first gear really, really slow, we'll do it. We'll be fine. And immediately when the pavement ended and the gravel started, Jeremy was in the lead and he could not stay on his side of the road. Like he rolled onto the gravel and immediately just got pushed over to the left-hand side facing oncoming traffic, which there wasn't any at the time, and like pointing into the ditch. If he didn't stop, he would have been in the ditch. And he's laughing like, oh, this is funny. Wow, the wind really is strong. This is something else. Hey, what an experience. I'm not laughing. I'm like, that doesn't look fun at all. So you shove and you wiggle and you feel like your bike is like basically skating on ice underneath you, wiggling all over the place. And then finally the gravel thins out a little. There's a rut you can find, like a tire track that's smoothed out. But then the wind is gusting. So one thing that we had been told by a friend who was from Argentina is that the wind is usually quieter in the mornings, early, early, like 6 a.m. Get up and get your miles done. Be off the road by noon. And then the worst of the wind you'll avoid. It usually picks up in the afternoon. Well, it's probably two o'clock in the afternoon by the time we're on this section of road. And then we got a wind app and it confirmed that it picks up through the afternoon. It gets stronger and stronger. So two o'clock, three o'clock, four o'clock in the afternoon, we're still on this road fighting and fighting and fighting the wind. And like Jeremy said, you can lean into it and fight it when it's consistent, but then it gusts or then it stops. And a gust came along and pushed me out of my tire track into a thicker section. But I survived. I stayed up into the next rut. And I thought, okay, well, I'll just stay here. No, because when the wind pushes me next time, I'll be in oncoming traffic. So that's no good. Try to fight my way through the thick gravel and get back to the first rut. And you just do that again and again and again. And it's so tiring. And then the wind pushed and pushed and gusted so strong that it kept pushing me out of the second rut into the oncoming traffic, but nobody was coming. So it was okay. And then kept pushing me. And I thought, I'm going to end up in the ditch. I want to stop, put my foot down, crank my handlebars to the right, get myself like just power on my throttle and get through the thick stuff back to my side of the road. 
But when I stopped is when you're the most vulnerable. Like you can't stand still in that wind. So as soon as I put my foot down, the wind just threw me to the ground, pushed mm. my bike over. I was so mad. I kicked my motorcycle a few times. I probably swore a few times. <laughs> like it's then, Mike's fault. <laughs> well, Elle I just says, had... says that she probably <laughs> swore a few times. <laughs> it wasn't too bad of a fall, though. Like, I didn't fall. The bike fell over, and then I was able to kind of, like, run a little bit, get your feet underneath you, you know, how you yeah. kind of walk off when your bike tips over. So I felt like, okay, that wasn't as bad as it could be. No damage done. Okay. I can't pick up my bike on my own in this wind. What's the point? It'll just push it over again. So I'll just wait for Jeremy to get here. And then I calmed down a little, took a few deep breaths. Jeremy came, we picked up the bike. I got back on it. Like, don't even try to leave your bike standing on its kickstand alone. It will get thrown to the ground. So he holds it while I get back on. I fight through the thick gravel. I get back to my side of the road and we go and we agree just like two kilometers at a time. Take it easy. We'll manage slowly. Sooner or later, we'll get there. And then I got further ahead and the same thing happened again. It pushed me and pushed me and pushed me to the side of the road and I fell. And then Jeremy and I decided, why don't we just try riding in the ditch? Like at, the wind will still push you, but at least there's no gravel down there. There's a little bit of prickly bushes. So you don't want to ride over those and there's some rocks to avoid, but it looks way better surface to ride on than this thick gravel stuff. So we tried that for a while and it worked. And I was feeling okay. I was getting there. We're moving. Woohoo. And then I tried stopping again. And the moment I put my foot down, the wind just shoved my bike over. And I thought, okay, I'll do the same thing. I'll kind of like run a little bit, get my feet underneath me. And at least I won't hit the ground. It'll be okay. And I'm going slow. Shouldn't be any damage. But the wind gusted again. And it's so strong. It feels the same as if someone walks up behind you and puts a hand on each of your shoulder blades and just shoves you. So my bike is down and now I'm down too. And I've just been shoved to the ground, like smacked my helmet, my hands flat on the ground. I was so mad. And I'm laying there on my hands and knees in the dirt. And the only thing that I have available all around me is a bunch of rocks. So I picked up a couple rocks and just hucked them <laughs> yelling. And I'm so angry. I'm angry at this road. I'm angry at this wind. I'm angry at this stupid place. And, uh, and as I hollered for probably the third time, my voice just kind of cracked. And instead of a holler, it became a cry. And I was very upset. And I hit my knees again and I just sobbed and sobbed and sobbed in the middle of the dirt and the ditch at the side of the road in Route 40. And Jeremy, I'm sure, was wondering what to do and feeling a little awkward, like, oh, I have no idea how to handle this situation. I shut my communication system off. I actually disconnected it from my helmet because I don't want him listening to this. And I couldn't help it. I just let out sobs for probably five minutes. Mm-hmm. And, and I was done. I was me- so exhausted. In the meantime, I was trying to park my motorcycle so that it wouldn't get blown away. And I was trying to come back and help Elle. And uh, her motorcycle was on the ground. She was seated a few paces beyond that on the ground with her back to me and just crying. And uh, I, yeah, she's right. I didn't exactly know what to do at that point because we had only gone 35 kilometers of the 70 kilometer section of Bad Road. And I just wanted to say, all right, let's pick up the bike. Let's keep going. Like just one kilometer at a time, just one kilometer at a time. But she was done. She Mm. even said that. She just said, I'm done. 
I'm done, Jeremy. Well, well, that's so, stress, isn't it? I mean, El, you, you were extremely, so, extremely stressed from the whole thing. I mean, it has to be. Did you have vehicles come uh, towards you and pass you? There were a few, not too many. Yeah. But those moments there, they have to be almost terrifying because you never know they're, when a gust of wind. They're looking at you and they're checking and they're giving you the thumbs up through the window and they're asking, are you okay? But they're going oh. very slow, even four-wheeled vehicles. They're taking a slow pace on this rough road. Right. And we met a couple of motorcyclists who, uh, like when we first entered the section of Gravel Road, we met uh, about four motorcyclists that had tried the road and decided it was too bad. So they turned around and they were coming out. And they were and, giving us the thumbs down sign, like the road gets worse further yeah. on. Oh, yeah. really? So. Oh, that's not a good sign. The thing is with, with wind, you mentioned about it being better in the morning. That That's pretty much, you know, anywhere you go, it's, it's generally calmer in the morning and windier mm-hmm. in the afternoon. So at, mm-hmm. at this point, you guys decide to camp here. I decided, I mean, I knew that the only thing to do was to convince Jeremy, but I decided, I thought if I was alone right now and I wasn't with Jeremy or anyone else, I would sleep right here because this wind is infuriating and it's not going to get any better. We know it's late afternoon. We know it's not going to get better till morning. And I kind of don't even care if I set up a tent, like I wanted to lay down in my motorcycle gear. It's padded. It's kind of comfortable. I'm not going to get a great sleep, but I'm not going to get a great travel here either. Like, why keep fighting this? This is so infuriating. And I'm probably going to break something if I keep dropping my bike like this, right? I might hurt myself if I keep pushing it past the point of reason. And I'm definitely past the point of feeling like I'm in control of this situation at all. So I said, I'm done. I, I literally think that we should just sleep right here. And then in the morning, like, I don't care what time in the morning, I don't care if it's 3am and it's dark out. If the wind stops, that's when we get up and go again. We just wait out the wind. And Jeremy wasn't quite convinced. You you know, I've ridden in very heavy wind and it's nothing like what you're talking about. And I know the emotional stress of that, of trying to stay in your lane, trying to maintain control of the bike. It is extremely mm-hmm. stressful. And and by the sounds of it, I mean, you're it's like umpteen times over that. Mm-hmm. So I can imagine what, what it feels like to do that. And particularly on gravel, as you said, yeah. gravel, you, you have far less control, far less stick on the road. Yeah. And it, it, like I say, it was the worst kind of gravel. All of them were round stones, river, river gravel, I guess, and uh, piled thick and rutted. So even if you do gain a little bit of control, uh, that's only for as long as that tire track lasts and then you'll be into the soft stuff again. So, you know, you can imagine uh, what it was like setting up a tent in that wind. Uh, We found a we found a slight windbreak in this hummock of gravel that was beside the road in the ditch. And I rode my motorcycle over there. And then I tried to ride Elle's bike over there too, out of one ditch across the road and into the other ditch because the wind was a little less. And I dropped her bike in the process. Well, I didn't drop her bike. The wind shoved it over. Um, it, it was brutal. So we did set up the tent. It was like, I wish we had video of that because it would have been hilarious to see um, me struggling with the tent. What we ended up doing was getting the tent somewhat erected, and then we couldn't stake it down, of course, because it would constantly try to fly away. So I just told Al, bring everything heavy that you can off of your bike and put it inside the tent. Just Everything, so, yeah. all of the luggage off both of our bikes, plus my body. Just try to hold the thing down. And the tent got ripped in the process. Mm-hmm. We had to sew it up again later, and we finally got ourselves situated, and we collapsed into the tent 
and we just immediately fell asleep, Jim. Like we didn't was, roll out our, our mats, we didn't pull out our sleeping bags. We just laid there with our full gear on and fell asleep, both of us, because we were exhausted and worn out. We used the kickstands of our motorcycles as corner pegs for the tent because they wouldn't hold with tent pegs. And then we found boulders to use for the other corners. And even while we were laying in the tent, we thought, this is dangerous. Mm-hmm. If the mo- if the wind blows our motorcycles over, they will land on top of us in the tent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it was not a good sleep. And do you wake up to silence? You know that feeling when yes. a storm goes by and we get that here yeah. on the coast, you know, it blows all night and all of a sudden you wake up and it's silent. It seems yeah. really weird. Because the sound is so different. It yeah. alerts you. Yeah, absolutely. That did happen at about five in the morning. The mm. wind calmed down in the evening. Like once it got dark, it was calmer, but still blowing. And then it was dead silent at 5 a.m. And I immediately was like, let's go right now. <laughs> let's get this over with. When we first just crashed immediately after getting the tent up, um, we woke up from that nap and found a couple other motorists who were stuck. They had a flat tire on their vehicle. Like their tire was shredded mm-hmm. on that road and they needed some help. Someone else would already help them. And then we walked around a bit and we saw a fox mm-hmm. and we saw some guanacos mm-hmm. and we saw a little armadillo. And it was kind of like our own little safari in the middle of the ditch on the Route to 40 that day. Yeah, it was actually pretty cool. Like to stop in a a place that, you know, you don't think you're going to stop and then have all this wildlife just come up to you. Mm. Um, The armadillo particularly just walked right up to us and like hid behind my boot for a little bit. I think it was trying to get out of the wind too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was a good experience. Um, We had cold pizza with us and we had a kilogram of peanuts. So we survived. Can't go wrong. Yeah, And that's the great thing about carrying your camping gear, you know, having everything Mm -hmm. with you so that you can just call it quits and a bit of food. You call it quits wherever you are. Um, But also you got to spend more time in a place that most people will just force themselves to get through. That had Mm -hmm. to be even a better experience. Yeah. Um, And there were enough people driving by that if, if it really came down to an emergency situation, we could have flagged someone down and said, you know, do you have some water <laughs> or like, I'm sure somebody would have had something they could have given us uh, on the side of the road. Um, it was, it was a good night all in all, although an exhausting one. And when we woke up in the morning and packed everything up, it was calm. The wind did start to kick up just towards the end of it. Uh, but we got to the end, edge of the gravel and then, um, carried on from there. What else did you experience on the way to Swaya? Well, we went, uh, we saw the, the Cave of the Hands. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was just before the, the horrible section of Gravel Road where it's these ancient cave paintings. Um, what were they, five to 10,000 years old, something like this. Um, brilliantly preserved in the Argen, Argentine uh, landscape. And of course, Fitzroy, we talked about that. Um Moreno Glacier. Oh, yeah. Because we have glaciers in Canada and up in Alaska, but you can't get quite close to them like you could with this one. It was beautiful to see. Yeah, it's this beautiful blue glacial ice that just calves off into the uh, into the water. Just ice as far as you can see, really. The lookout point is built on a hill adjacent to the glacier. And because you're up so high on the hill, you can actually be pretty close and watch pieces fall off and get really close photos and see the depth of it and the height of it. It was neat. I'm glad we went to that. Mm-hmm. Glacier calving, they call it, don't they? And I, I don't understand yeah. why, because you expect a calf to grow, but in this case, right. it, it disintegrates. <laughs> and it makes a huge sound like thunder, and it echoes all around you. Oh, does it? Wow. Yeah. 
What was it like to roll into Ushuaia? Because that's the turnaround point for you. That's mm-hmm. the halfway point in the trip. That's almost like mm-hmm. the destination. What was that like? Yep. We, we took some photos at that sign that you quite often see other motorists take, the Ushuaia end of the world sign. And I wanted to reflect how I felt. So I just laid down on the ground with my face flat down because I'm exhausted, partly from fighting the wind and stuff, but partly just from always trying to get your brain to work in a language that I'm still not fluent in and trying to work on thinking where you're going to go and route planning and deciding um, roads that you're going to take. Um, figuring out where you're going to sleep, what food you're going to have today. I think our brains are working a lot more than they do usually back in Canada at a regular day. Oh, but, yeah. but it's a good uh-huh. exhaustion though, right? I mean, I, and mm-hmm. I, I just kind of, kind of like doing the garden and when you're done, you're exhausted, but it feels fantastic. Yes. Yeah. And then mixed with a little bit of sadness too. For me, I think almost the day we arrived in Ushuaia, we stayed for about a week. We stayed for about a week and we slept for most of it. <laughs> yeah, there was two days when we didn't leave the hostel. We just ate and slept. Wow, you guys really were tired. We we were conked out, and we had some big decisions to make too. We were agonizing over uh, whether or not we blow like a third of our budget on this big expensive. We're going to take two minutes to give a shout out to a couple of sponsors to help bring this episode to you today. Stick around when we come back. They just about blew the budget. Jeremy has fallen out of love with the KLR and uh, a whole bunch more. Stay with us. The other day, I was kind of shocked to find that my merino wool that I use underneath my, well, I use it a lot. Um, it's got a hoodie on it and I, and I pull it up and put it under, put the hoodie underneath my helmet. I was shocked to find that the thing is rotting. It's really just falling apart. It's, it's kind of like it's been dipped in acid or it's been, you know, sit around and it's rotting. It's really weird. So it's all frayed and everything. And, th- and to put this in perspective, I've only had this thing for about a year. And I, and I got thinking about the merino wool and I was thinking, well, my pearly socks, I've had those for over a year and they're not showing like any signs of wear. I don't see anything. I'm nothing noticeable anyway. And I'm wearing those a lot, probably more than what most people would because I wear them in the summertime as well. I think they're fantastic in any boots um, in just about any weather. The pearly possum socks, they're made with a, a combination though. They're not just straight merino wool. They're made with merino wool and possum hair. And, and I really think this is their this is their mojo. This is the thing that makes them what they are. This blend of these two materials that make this thick, soft, but more importantly, really, really warm sock. Pearlies are the best cold weather socks I have found to date. I've never worn anything better than these socks. Not even as good as these socks, not even in the same category. Um, these are specifically made for us motorcyclists, like I said. And you know what it's like when the temperature drops? Your your hands and your feet are the first ones to suffer from the cold. And with your feet sitting there on the cold foot peg in the wind, exposed to the water and the mud and everything else, and every time you put your foot down, they get cold. It's just a simple fact. And when your feet get cold inside you know, some tough leather boots or your heavy-duty boots that you're wearing for riding, tall boots probably, it's almost impossible to get them warm again. And I, and I always say when it comes to outdoor stuff, the best way to get warm is to not let yourself get cold to begin with. Dress properly, use layers, and treat your feet to the best cold-weather sock you can get for motorcyclists. Pearly's Possum Socks. Anyway, check them out at their website, pearlyspossumsocks.com. And of course, mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio when you talk with them. 
If you like to take your adventure bike into places that most dare not go, then the foot pegs that you may want to consider are the IMS Products Core Enduro. The Core Enduro foot peg is aimed at riders, well, like that, do those sorts of things with their bike. It's a wider than stock base that gives you that additional leverage needed to maneuver a heavy adventure bike in tight areas. And you got to consider the extra weight of this bike compared to a dirt bike. That leverage does huge things for your control. And the, the shape of the teeth keep your, because they're sharper teeth, they keep your foot planted right where you left them totally bolstering confidence in controlling your ride. In fact, the Core Enduro pegs had numerous off-road wins before they were ever released to the public. So have a look at them. They've got the Core Enduro, and of course, they've got them right on up to the ADV1 and 2 foot pegs as well, all covering different styles of riding. Have a look at what they've got at imsproducts.com. And of course, anytime you're talking with them, please throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. We stayed for about a week and we slept for most of it. <laughs> yeah, there was two days when we didn't leave the hostel. We just ate and slept. Oh, you guys really were tired. Yeah. We, we were conked out and we had some big decisions to make too. We were agonizing over uh, whether or not we blow like a third of our budget on this big expensive side adventure to Antarctica. Um, like Elle was saying in our pre-interview here, Jim, uh, there was a lot of cancellations because of the coronavirus and so um, these cruise liners were looking to fill some last minute spots, but it was still more than we could afford. Anyway, that took a lot of mental uh, energy. And- do we spend the money? Do we not? Mm. Will we regret it if we do? Will we regret it if we don't? Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about this. What is it? You, 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 you get to Ushuaia and I guess everybody, does everybody talk about the trip to Antarctica? I mean, it is the jumping off point. There's quite a few stores on the main street that advertise um, last minute deals, Antarctica. Um, there's a few smaller tours around if you want to go to an island nearby and see penguins or go see the lighthouse at the end of the world. But the big operators who are advertising Antarctic cruise have posters right in their window. Last minute deals, last minute deals. Can't miss it. So we yeah. looked into that. And even at the hostel where we were staying, the guy said, I have a, a name of someone who speaks English and can tell you everything you need to know and answer all your questions. And she works with a few different companies. So she can can tell you who's got the best deal, what times they go, if you have a time frame, what's offered, if you want to go to specific places. Some of them are only five days, some are 10 days, some are 15 days. You need to see specific things on your trip. She can help you organize all that stuff. Mm, that's what I was going to ask. How far, how long is it? And potentially how much money are we talking here? Yeah. Well, we signed a thing saying we're not supposed to talk to passengers about how much we paid. I don't know if we're like bound by that now, but uh, it was... Um, I think I can say when you do the math and you convert American dollars back to Canadian, it was about $9,000 each. No, no, um, hang on. Sorry, Jeremy. It sounded like you just said $9,000 each. Yeah. Did, is that U.S. Um, that's, funds? That's Canadian. No, that's, that's Canadian. Canadian. That's Canadian. That's after the conversion. So it was $6,700. Um, but we we took a slightly more expensive option. There are cheaper options, but they didn't work with our timeline. Um, we had to be back in Buenos Aires to meet a friend uh, on the 22nd. of. So anyway, we just had to go a bit faster than the average one. But we still spent... Um, so we flew over the Drake Passage, which is normally a two-day sailing one way and then a two-day sailing the other way. And um, notorious for making people seasick and things like that. 
So we skipped those four days of sailing. We flew to King George Island and then spent four amazing days on this luxury uh, cruise liner, which is just brand new. And Ellen and I kept thinking, like, somebody's going to find out that we don't belong here, right? Because we're surrounded by people. We had a nicer room on the ship than we have had in any hotel we've stayed in this whole trip. I've never stayed in a place like this. It was our own private bathroom and big bed and big... The shower had like five different shower heads on it. It was amazing. We had a balcony in our room that overlooked the Antarctic. So you could be in your own room and watch glaciers and icebergs and penguins and whales go by right beside your room. Yeah, we saw dozens, if not maybe even over a hundred humpback whales. Um, We saw some orcas and elephant seals and uh, sea lions and of course uh, penguins everywhere. So many penguins. Yeah. Mm. Everyday penguins. So you you flew over the part where you were saying that, you know, is, is sort of the voyage to get there. And then they use the same boat as sort of a hotel for you? It's a it's pretty much a cruise ship. So we flew to the islands and landed on a gravel runway, took a tiny little Zodiac boat, those inflatable ones. And they took us to the ship, which was just offshore a little ways. And once you're on that ship, you're on a luxury hotel. Well, that's what I mean. The, the ship is obviously a, a cruise ship, that, so they must yeah. have extra space knowing that they're going to fly people in? Uh, no, they do it in shifts. So like a cruise is so many days. And once one, like when we were outgoing on the ship, there was another shift, I guess, of, of people who were going on this cruise coming in. So they always have it booked, but... Um, outgoing makes room for incoming. We, uh, we were getting on the plane. Oh, People I see. Were getting that, on. that boat sits there all the time. Yeah. That boat sits there all the time. It does the, the Drake passage. Like it will actually sometimes do that sailing. Um, but it's also designed to, to accept people who have flown in. Yep. So the whole, the whole ship empties out and then fills up again on the same day. And, you know, it was impressive. Even the people who were like playing support roles, like the maitre d', for example, and um, just the Zodiac drivers, uh, they were incredibly overqualified for their position. It was a high class organization. I think one of our Zodiac drivers had a PhD in in marine biology and um, all they were doing was just shuttling people around. And, oh, you want to ask me a question? Yeah, I went to school for eight years to tell you that that's a mm-hmm. chinstrap penguin. Mm-hmm. Wow. There was a professor of geology. There were professors of marine biology. There were people with two, three degrees. And anytime you had questions, they were more than happy to share info. There was a photography specialist. So if you're like, I want to take pictures of this and I need to know more information. Oh, well, I have a degree in photography. Plus I'm a Zodiac driver. Plus I, you know, drive cruise ships in Antarctica. So I can help you with that. Mm-hmm. Amazing stuff. I, I guess they attract those people with um, the fact that it's Antarctica, right? I mean, you know, so it's an mm-hmm. opportunity to yeah. go there. So that's why you'll find those people driving a Zodiac because they're there to experience it too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was one um, guy there. He was he was like one of the first people to summit Everest without oxygen, and he lost a bunch of fingers to frostbite. And uh, and we got to hang out and have dinner with him yep. and talk all about it. I used to do a lot of ice climbing, so we actually had some, not friends in common, but some connections in common. And so we would talk about that. And um, just like I say, everybody there was overqualified for their jobs, and it was very well run. Um, But a lot of those people who were on board, most of them, I think, paid full price. So you'd think that the $9,000 that we spent was expensive, and it was. Like, we agonized over it. 
Um, there were people there who spent four times that amount to get on uh, board. So that's why we weren't supposed to talk about what pricing we got and whatnot like that. Yeah, people who booked ahead and had the dates that they wanted a year in advance and the specific room that they wanted and things like that. Yeah, there's mm. quite a big price to pay for that. Mm-hmm. I, I thought you were going to tell me that, yeah, so we didn't actually pay the 9000 I thought that was the retail price. I didn't realize oh, no. that was your deal. That's, that's the last minute price. That's yeah. unbelievable. Now, the only reason, as you said, was because of this sort of with the, the COVID-19 or coronavirus that um, is g- giving them cancellations. I mean, you, you locked out, really. Would you, you wouldn't have been able to do this, would do. you? I think they do still have last minute deals, but I think they were more than usual because of the coronavirus. Oh, I see. So if they have a last yeah. few last seats, you might get a deal like this. So it's possible for somebody else to get a deal. Yeah. And one of the other options that we were looking at was a little bit less expensive, but we wouldn't be able to have our own room. We would be in a shared berth. So like a dorm room, there was a female one and a male one. So Jeremy and I would have separate rooms. There'd be no balcony. There'd be no window. Maybe you could have a porthole mm-hmm. in your room or maybe nothing at all. Those ones would be a little less expensive. And I think those are commonly available for last minute deals if you're not picky about your dates. So if you have all the time in the world to just sit in Ushuaia and wait for three weeks or a month, you could probably get a good price on yeah. one of those. In mm-hmm. fact, that's the, that's the main reason that we took the slightly more expensive option was because, like I say, we had to meet a friend here. We had to be in Buenos Aires on the 22nd of February. So all the other uh, options, they were cheaper, but they weren't as nice. But the main thing was they wouldn't get us to Buenos Aires on time. So we'd be late by a week and our friend was flying down from Canada to visit us. So we kind of didn't want to say too bad for you. Sorry, we're not going to be there when you arrive. Yeah, exactly. $9,000 Canadian. You said 6,700 roughly US dollars. What'd you see for that? Was it worth it in in hindsight? Mm -hmm. And what did you see? Well, I'll tell you if it was worth it in hindsight, if I uh, make it back to Canada and still have some money left over to buy groceries. Uh, <laughs> right now, we are we are burning fumes. Oh, so I talked to you earlier, Jim, about this big cash call in my condo, right? And this big financial disaster that was looming. Um, right. So let, let's just remind the listener in case they don't remember it. Um, there was some sort of something done, it seemed like underhanded with your condominium. And they basically spent all your cash and they were saying that everyone in the condominium may have to pony up some cash, some serious cash to, I guess, get the books in order. Yeah, that's right. There was some mismanagement, possibly some criminally um, mismanaged funds. And anyway, a million dollars from our building had gone missing and all of us were on the hook to resupply or restock the the reserve fund. So I was expecting in the middle of this trip, a $15,000 cash call. And it was really stressing me out. Uh, I mean, it was weighing on me heavily. And then we got the news that, hey, good news. It's not $15,000. We only need $4,000 from you. And so I was breathing a huge sigh of relief, even though that's still a big financial hit uh, in the middle of a trip that I've saved for for years. Um, but then I turn around and spend it all anyway on an Antarctic cruise. We kind of rationalized it yeah. that way, yeah. So mm-hmm. I was like, well, at least I didn't you know, give it all to the condominium building. I'm now spending it on something that I want. So <laughs> That's, I, we, I thought you were going to say when they misplaced $1 million, they found it. Oh, it was just turns out it was under the couch. Yeah. I mean, we, we oh, get that, right? We lose a million dollars. It happens. Sometimes mm-hmm. you do, yeah. So anyway... All that stressing that I was doing about money, um, I was suddenly very relieved when I heard the figure, and then now I'm back to being stressed about it, but stressed and happy that I had a, a great experience. So I would say that, yes, it was worth it, um, 
I'm glad we made the decision that we did make. Uh, it's just going to make the return journey slightly more challenging. Mm-hmm. And when I come home, like I will be spent, I think emotionally I'll be spent physically, you know, and financially, and for financially sure. yeah, I'll be strapped. I'll need to get back into, but not complaining though. Um, no regrets so far. You know, when you take pictures and the pictures are never as accurate as it was in real life and you oh, think, yeah. oh, even if I get better at photography, there's still some things that you can't really capture the full beauty of. Mm-hmm. Still, our pictures of Antarctica are awesome. And looking back on them now is enough to remind ourselves it was awesome. Oh, really? It's that special that basically you point the lens and, and you're going to get something spectacular. Yes. Hmm. Yeah. The blue, blue, blue of those icebergs as they float right past you and make little snap, crackle and pop sounds as they go by. And then you go around the corner and it's not just an iceberg. There's a big fat seal laying on it and there's an orca going by. It's amazing. Hmm. How much money and fuel do you think you've spent to get to Ushuaia? Oh, we have not calculated some of those costs. And I think some of that is on purpose. Hmm. Um, we could try probably to guess if we figured out how many miles we've gone and roughly how many miles I can go on a tank of gas. I know, um, I'm spending about $30 a day and Elle's spending probably 20. So my fuel bills are much more, uh, much more significant than hers, but my oil changes are cheaper. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> you just had to get something in there, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. I mean, let's face it. The BMW is better on fuel than the KLR. It's as simple as that. Oh, it yeah. is with the 800 as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so much more powerful too. So like whenever we fuel up, uh, she's kind of stopped doing it now because there, the pattern has been established, but she used to always come over and see how much I had spent on fuel <laughs> and then do a little gloating dance. Over how many liters he needed compared to me. Yeah. Oh, yours is more expensive. Oh, uh-huh. interesting. Isn't that interesting? So yeah, my Kalars cost more, but I would say 30 bucks a day. I was thinking that the, how far would you get on $9,000 that you spent on this? Oh, you know, what could sorry. that have done for your travel experience? And, and do you think about that when you go into a place, like you go to Machu Picchu or any yeah. of these places, do you think that, okay, part of the reason we're traveling is to experience these things. And on the other hand, what can I do with that money somewhere else on the trip as Absolutely. far as getting places? When I left Canada and went to Panama and back on my motorcycle, that whole trip that took six months was about $10,000. So six months compared to uh, one week in Antarctica. Yeah. yeah big difference. Mm-hmm. It's something that I won't probably do again, um, but I would look for an opportunity if I could ever figure out a different way to get there and cheaper or, you know, who knows, maybe one day I will be um, financially stable and I can actually do the whole experience again. But um, I, I'm i glad I did it. Mm-hmm. Quite often um, when you're on a trip like this and you hit the, the turnaround point, it changes the feeling much, much like a horse does. You know, I grew up riding horses and you, you, you turn the, the horse around and you start heading back, particularly if you're close to the barn, they tend to really rush to get back. Mm-hmm. And we do that They're too. You, know? to go home. You, you get that turnaround mm-hmm. point and then you, your mindset changes, your whole demeanor changes with the trip. Do you guys feel that? Have you hit the halfway point? Have you decided now we're on the return and it's about getting back and you're starting to think about things at home more than what you're, you're thinking about on the trip? Or how does it change? Well, I did, when I was sitting in a restaurant in Ushuaia, this was just before we went to the Antarctic, I did say to Al, well, this trip is an out and back, and we've done all the out part. 
And she did, if I may be so bold, she did shed a single tear. And uh, yeah, so there's some emotion uh, definitely with this turnaround point. And we're not going south anymore. There's no more south. But it's not the horse's feeling. It's the opposite. I'm sad to be going back. I see you digging your heels in, sort of wanting to slow things down at this point. But but it definitely has changed things then. Yeah. Yeah. I am still really stoked to be on this trip. Uh, But I'm also, like, I'm not looking forward to it yet, but I do like my life in Canada and I do like where I live in Canmore and all that kind of stuff. So um, I'm looking forward to being reunited with my guitar, for example, and stuff like that. Um, but I'm trying to appreciate what I have right now. I still haven't seen Uruguay, Paraguay, Brazil, uh, and there's stuff to do on the way back north that we've been skipping. So yeah, to me, it doesn't feel like a halfway point, even though it actually is. And I still have to figure out what I'm doing with my motorcycle. Like, how do I get it back home? Um, we took the, the stall rot on the way down here. And I'm not sure if that's the solution on the way back or if I can afford it now that I did this Antarctic thing. Um, so there's a lot of questions and a lot of figuring to do. You mean, like, what's your options? You're, you're either going to fly it or, or put it on a boat if it's not the stall rat. Right. So the stall rat does do uh, a return journey that I could maybe catch if the timing works out. It's a bit early, um, but I have to research that a little bit more. And yeah, if if it is uh, not going to work for my timeline or whatever, I think the cheapest thing would be to fly it from Colombia to Panama. Or, you know, the other option is do I ship it from, you know, Santiago to Los Angeles or something like that? Uh, these are all questions that have to be answered. Okay, I didn't hear in there selling it because I, I thought that maybe is where you were going. You're considering selling uh-huh. it. I I thought about it earlier on. I was thinking about it more than I am now. Um, I think I'm just going to try to get it back to Canada and have my my beloved motorcycle. Even though I have kind of fallen out of love with the KLR 650, I have to be honest. Um, but at least I'll have a bike when I get back. I think if someone came up and offered a good amount of money and promised that it would be easy to make the transaction happen, that would be tempting for you, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I don't have any emotional, real uh, attachment to this motorcycle. It's uh, it's a tool that I'm using. You know, I've got a motorcycle back home that I love and I don't want to sell. It's a 1982 Honda. Um, but this bike here, um, I could sell it for sure. But right now, I'm not looking at that as a, as a real option. Your Honda at home, that's a street bike, isn't it? Yeah, but I use it like a dirt bike. <laughs> I've taken I've taken it up over uh, logging roads and stuff in BC, and um, yeah, it handles just fine. You, you've done loads of traveling with a KLR 650, and now you're saying you've fallen out of love with it. What did that? Well, I guess I've never really loved it. It was it was always just the bike that I could afford. So I buy used KLR 650s um, because I can get them for $3,500 and then I can take them around, you know, I've gone over the Middle East and North Africa with them. Uh, I've gone to Panama and back and now this, and I kind of understand them. I'm not a very good mechanic. So the simpler the machine, the better. And, um, yeah, they're they're an affordable piece of equipment, and they are the laughing stock of the motorcycle community. And I laugh along with the motorcycle community at the KLR six hundred and fifty. But it, I do love it sometimes, and sometimes I do wish that I had a few extra ponies uh, to pull me through corners and stuff like that. So uh, it's a it's a complicated relationship that I have with the KLR six hundred and fifty. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Mm, it has a huge following. I mean, I, I particularly like the KLR six hundred and fifty. I think it's a great bike, but um, 
if you were to do this trip again, would you choose a different bike? No, <laughs> that's funny because uh, for all the complaining that I do about the KLR, people ask me that. So would you pick a KLR 650 again? The answer is yes, I would. Um, it's a bit of a self-limiting machine. So um, sometimes I wish that I had more horsepower, but if I had it, I would use it. And so sometimes that is helpful when I want to accelerate out of a corner and I can't because it's doing the best it can with all of my luggage and me. Um, it means that I'm going slower and that's a good thing. Uh, I think, especially when you're traveling, you don't want to push the, the edges of, um, control. Especially when you've already had a really good wipeout recently. Oh yeah. I've already gotten myself into trouble with the KLR. Um, the other day I was on a gravel road and I went down going about 50 kilometers an hour or something like that. I always change, uh, when I'm telling the story, I change how fast I was going because honestly, I don't know. It could have been <laughs> anywhere between 70 kilometers an hour and 40, but I was going fast enough that when I did crash, the bike high sided and flipped up and went through the air. So it must wow. have been. We were, it was a wash 40 road. It was one of those ones that was horrible slow speed. And if you go about 70, it feels better, mm -hmm. but we slowed down for the corners when the gravel thickened up and you didn't have those ruts anymore. So I would say you were probably going 60 or 70. Yeah. So high sided, I mean, you, that usually does a fair bit of damage. Did much happen? Uh, the luggage rack is all bent up and I have to bend that back into place. That's on my list of things to do here in Buenos Aires. Um, other than that, no damage. I just had to tighten all the bolts again and bend a few things back into place, but no, it was fine. I just had to be very careful that I didn't put my foot down because as you know, I rode dirt bikes when I was a little kid and into my teens and you commonly put your foot down to steady yourself or whatever. But with a KLR and all that luggage, if you put your foot down, especially going at 50 kilometers an hour, you know, that's when you break bones and stuff. So I had the presence of mind to keep my feet on my pegs and I went over onto the right side. And as I was going over, I was still like, keep your feet on your pegs, Jeremy, keep it. This is going to hurt. Yep. But it's going to hurt more if you try to step off now. So I actually just went down onto my right side and then the bike was violently plucked out of my grasp and thrown, uh, it high sided after that. And I stayed on the ground and did a bunch of tumbling and sliding, but um, no damage to me, uh, a little bit of damage to the motorcycle. And again, it was that crazy round, thick gravel. And, um, you know, I could talk about how it happened. I know exactly how it did, but uh, it was just basically a lapse of attention on my part. So I got what I deserved and I got lucky and, and the bike and me are both okay. Wow. I'm, I'm glad you're okay. And I'm glad your bike's okay. I'm glad it didn't mm -hmm. come out with much more damage than that. Um, yeah. So when you guys are sitting at Ushuaia um, and you've done, you've dropped your $9,000. <laughs> Sorry, I just, I'm stunned by that price. But mm -hmm. um, when you've done that and you're sitting there, did it turn out like you thought? I mean, when you are you sitting there with a, like a good feeling or, or the regrets or what? We talked about that too. So this was about two days of deciding and going back and forth. And we looked at our options. We decided on the one. We agreed we're going to spend this money. We're going to figure out a way. I have to spread it out across three different credit cards to make it work. And then we go back to the place and we say, okay, we've decided. Let's do it. And they said, oh, oh, that one? Uh, geez, I don't know if there's still room available. Let me look. <laughs> 
And then we, I know I felt disappointed. So that was my final deciding point. Like if I'm disappointed that it might not be available, I know for sure I really want this. Mm-hmm. But Jim, you weren't asking about Antarctica, were you? No, and I'm, I'm glad you picked that up, Jeremy. I'm asking about the whole trip. I mean, that was interesting yeah. though about Antarctica, but about the whole trip. Yeah. So yeah, you're asking about any regrets about how we got down to Ushuaia yeah. and doing the whole trip. Uh, no, absolutely not. I have been wanting to do this for long enough uh, that when I finally set it in motion, there's been a few points along this journey that I've breathed a huge sigh of relief. One was crossing from Panama to Colombia. One was getting into Argentina. And the other one was, yeah, when I reached Ushuaia and um, after taking those photos, finding a hostel, um, my goodness, I just felt this huge wave of relief and not exactly pride, but um, just, I guess, joy that I had that I had done it. And even if, um, you know, something happens to the motorcycle or I have to cut the trip short for whatever reason, a family emergency back home or something, I don't know, um, I will have done it. And it, it feels absolutely fantastic. So no regrets. Um, none so far, at least. Al? I agree. No regrets. If anything, um, I start to feel a little bit sad because once it's done or the thing that you wanted to do is complete, I want to have something else to look forward to. So starting to think of ideas of places to see on the way back, um, starting to think about the possibility of someday, maybe whenever somehow we can find money to do it, other places to travel by motorcycle. But no, I'm not um, thinking that anything is regretful on this trip. I just want more. Mm-hmm. More motorcycle travel some and, way, somehow, somewhere. And that's what Elizabeth had asked before we came on. She's asking, I wonder if they're thinking about their next adventure already. Because we hear it a lot. People are mm-hmm. you know, midway through their trip and they're thinking, wow, the possibilities. Because uh, you've done what you've done so far. And it just, um, at that point, it makes everything possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's a pretty common theme too. Um, whether or not we can figure out a way to make this feasible financially going forward is, is a bit of a challenge. Um, but the desire is certainly there. Do you guys have a, a feeling of, of accomplishment when you get to Aswaya? Is that what it is? Elle's nodding and I'm shaking my head. <laughs> uh, on, some, on some levels, yeah. Um, but Sometimes I think, well, we haven't done anything special. All we've done is we've sat on a motorcycle and just gone a few hundred kilometers every day. And if you can ride a motorcycle, you can do that. So I don't feel like it's a particular accomplishment. Sometimes I think that way. And then other times I think, no, it is a big deal. And we have gone a long way and we've struggled and we've sacrificed and we've earned it. But it really comes down to resolve. Um, And and I've written about this for Canada Moto Guide. It's just... Um, deciding to do it and then carrying through with it. Uh, you know, you don't have to be an athlete or a particularly talented motorcycle rider or mechanic or anything like that. If you can ride a motorcycle um, and you're determined to do it, you can find a way to get from Canada or Alaska or wherever your starting point is to Ushuaia. But but is there anything about the trip that was difficult, um, I guess difficult, in, in a way that it takes a special kind of person to do it? I think so. In some ways, there were times when I thought this is almost cheating. We have uh, maps.me 
and we have service. Even if I don't buy a SIM card in the next country I'm going to, my phone still tells me where I am and gives me maps of roads and places. It tells me where hostels are. This is almost too easy. It feels kind of like cheating. The first time I took a motorcycle trip to Mexico and back, there was none of that. I had paper maps. I got lost all the time. I ran out of gas. I ended up sleeping at the side of the road, not because I wanted to, just because I couldn't find the place I was going to. In comparison, this feels a little bit too easy and not like a challenge. But then there were still challenges. The wind in Patagonia, getting lost, um, figuring out how to get where you are and choosing roads that are scenic and beautiful and you want to see, but are still challenging. Like even the death road in Colombia. Mm-hmm. Um, some people will say that's not really a death road. They have guardrails, but it was raining. It was chilly. It was hard to see. It was sloppy and muddy. And there were moments when I definitely thought this is kind of insane. Mm-hmm. Like, who in their right mind leaves their comfortable home, their comfortable bed, their comfortable life to come be uncomfortable and challenged all the time? There absolutely have been challenges along the way. And I've met other people who said, ooh, wow, how are the border crossings in Central America? Like, aren't they kind of like I've heard notorious stories about them? Yeah, they are frustrating and they are challenging and incredibly time consuming and they don't make sense. But that's part of the journey. And I think if there weren't challenges like that along the way, then it wouldn't feel satisfying to reach Ushuaia. And to me, you can compare getting to Ushuaia with motorcycles uh, against getting to the Antarctic. Um, There are two adventures, one of which is a bit more of an accomplishment and the other one is just something that we paid for. So I I didn't feel like I had accomplished something when I set foot on Antarctica. you know, it, it's a continent that not many people get to visit, um, but I just paid to be there. I didn't have to really make much of a sacrifice and, you know, hire a team of dogs or whatever, learn all the knots and sail myself there. I just said, here's a bunch of money. It's more than I can afford, but take me there. <laughs> so, and compare that to arriving in Ushuaia, um, it took a lot more determination and it was a test of will and it was a test of you know, ability to some degree, but uh, mostly just resolve. I've eaten stuff I didn't want to eat. There were plenty of difficult days for sure. And, and it's, you know, I mean, you're riding roads that, that there's already vehicles on. That's why they're there. There's gas stations everywhere. There's all the infrastructure everywhere you're going. It's not like you're heading off into the deep wilderness, you know, with enough fuel to last you six months. You're riding places no. where people are driving every day. But mm-hmm. just like anybody can can take a step or pick up a brick, it's that doing it day after day after day that really gets you to where you want to go. So in other words, carrying the one brick and, and putting the one brick mm-hmm. on the wall, eventually you end up with a building. And that's really the accomplishment, isn't it? It's, it's knowing that you've done it steadily, day after day, to get mm-hmm. you where you want it to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, my hat's off to Elspeth Beard and to Ted Simon and uh, to the myriad of other travelers that have gone before us and before GPS and before there was any websites to help you out or iOverlander. Um, and, and sometimes today I even see these uh, cyclists who are biking everywhere. And I say to El, you know, they're actually having a bigger adventure than we are. Uh, they are sleeping, you know, on people's yards and in church parking lots and things like that. Um, there's more challenges and more challenging ways to move through the, the world than we're doing. But we're just doing what we can, you know, and, you know, slightly outside of our comfort zone, I would say. Um, 
you know, so my hat's off to those pioneers who went before us who didn't have the GPS and the ready access to information. Well, in the future, they're going to look back on what you guys have done and said, oh, I can't believe they only did it with GPS. I mean, I don't know what they're going to have, mm-hmm. but it's definitely going to be yeah. different. And, and you're going to, it's going to pale in comparison to the adventure that you guys just had. Yeah. I mean, and then there will be other adventures for people to have that yeah. will be bigger and better. And so like, we're not really comparing, I don't want to compare ourselves to anybody else really. Um, but uh, yeah, we're just kind of having fun riding every day. Well, and, you, and you're not doing it for that reason anyway, are you? I mean, you're not doing it no, to, no. to compare or to stand up beside or hold your measuring stick no. up. This is a, an internal experience that you guys are having. Yeah, it's something I've just wanted to do for a long time. Elle and I both love riding motorcycles. And even if we weren't moving through other cultures, I think we would still enjoy doing this journey mm-hmm. uh, in such a way. You just mentioned cultures. How do you guys feel that you've you've done with the cultures? Have you found yourself getting into the culture as you're passing through? Have you made connections in that? Do you, do you feel like you've really sort of worked yourselves in? Because you are traveling together and, and we all know that you do tend to sort of isolate yourselves more the bigger the group gets. So have you done that? Or have you managed to been able to do that? I feel like I have not done a particularly good job of immersing myself into the culture. Uh, I'm still struggling with the language quite a bit, and that's partly because of what you say. Uh, I'm traveling with Elle, so uh, I defer to her a lot. Her, she keeps reminding me that her Spanish is not awesome, but compared to mine, it sure is. So, um, yeah, I have been mostly involved in the motorcycling and navigating part, um, but seeing some sites along the way and seeing some local, um, festivities, like we're here in the middle of Carnival right now. And so getting, you know, involving yourself in the local cultures and customs does happen, but not to the degree that it could. And because we've been moving so much, we see a little bit, we see an opportunity to learn a little bit, get immersed momentarily, and then we're picking up and moving off again the next day. So not as much as we could be. In that way, would you change something if you, if you were to do it again or, or in future trips? Will you look at that and think that's something I want to do more of? I would need more money and more time. If I had unlimited funds and I didn't need to go back to work and fund my life, then yeah, absolutely. I would take more time. That's one thing I would do differently for sure. Or a shorter trip. Yeah. So if anyone out there listening is looking for a brand ambassador, we're, uh, <laughs> we're looking for some, some cash. Well, there you go. So if you're looking for a brand ambassador, you've got two of them here that are already chomping at the bit, ready to go. So um, the the, tri- the trip is on the way back now. Mm-hmm. You have things to see. You're not getting focused on the end result yet. You're still looking at your route home. And how far is that time-wise? I have to be back at work on October 1st. So that's my deadline. Hmm. My deadline technically is spring of 2021, um, but I don't know if I can make my funds last that long. So we'll see. Is there a point where you guys are going to go like, Elle, you're going to slow down and Jeremy's got to keep going? That's a possibility. We haven't discussed when that'll be. If Jeremy needs to go to get the stall rat across from Panama or Colombia to Panama, then that might be the point. We'll decide when we get closer to it. Well, just to wrap it up here, I have to ask one more thing, <laughs> because this has been a big part of what we've talked about is your relationship between the two of you. Now, I know it can't be that bad because you're using one ear, uh, one set of earphones between the two of you. <laughs> so, so that tells me things have still got to be pretty good. But what are we looking at here? What's changed from when you guys set out um, well, in we have, Canmore? We have two tents, but only one set of headphones. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what has changed? Um, I think 
uh, I can speak for myself. I have, I was, well, actually, let me back that up. Well, I'm going to let you answer <laughs> that first. Um, I was thinking of the two tents. We have used them again, but I think only once since last time we spoke to you that we set up our tents separately and gave each other some space. Um, what's changed is we get to know each other a little bit more. I think we can work with each other better. Um, there's been opportunities to learn more through very tense and awkward situations. Uh, one of the things I appreciate about Jeremy very much is it may take two or three days, but he can go back and revisit it. And then I can learn, oh, that's why you said that. Oh, I didn't know. I thought it was just because you were being rude and horrible. Okay, now that I understand <laughs> what was going on, I can have more patience with you regarding that kind of situation in the future. So we've definitely learned more about each other, I think, as you would have to on a trip like this. And we've still decided that we want to keep hanging out together. Mm -hmm. So something is definitely going right. Oh, yeah, I would say most things are going right. Um, but we have had, like Elle referred to or alluded to it, we have had a few days where we split up and, uh, you know, ate dinner at separate restaurants because we were a little bit grumpy or irritated. What, well, you told us about that last time. What did that happen okay. again? No, actually, no. If we told you about that last time, I kind of lost track of where we were. Yeah. There was a place where we set up our tents separately, but in the same campground. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's happened since then. Yeah, I think we're just getting into a bit of a groove and, um, you know, trying to be kind with each other and forgiving of each other and ourselves. So, and Elle said that I'm pretty good at uh, revisiting things, but she is too. We're, we're fairly self-aware. And if we're acting poorly in the moment... Um, generally, when cooler heads prevail, we can revisit it, like Al said, and say, well, this is why I was feeling and this is, you know, um, how I'm going to handle it going forward or whatever like that. We're, we're okay at dialogue. And that's partly due to Al's uh, career as a counselor. And we've had some good opportunities to mix it up with other people. When we stay in a hostel and meet some other travelers, we can chat with them, have conversation with them, go out and do things with them. Right now, we've got a friend who flew down from Canada to meet with us. So maybe Jeremy and him can go hang out and have beers in the local patio when I can go tango dancing. We've got more opportunities to separate and do things that we each want to do without the other one feeling like they're being dragged along, which is good. So you've got a better understanding, closer, stronger relationship than you'd say at this point? I would say so, yeah. Mm -hmm. I agree. You know, it's easy to listen to you guys talk and, and be critical, as we always do. You know, you listen to them, oh, well, they should do this, they should do that. And I can't understand why they're, they're getting uh, angry or upset with each other. But I, I have to give you guys credit and compliment you on your, your being so candid and open about your relationship and about how you feel. Because the stuff that you're saying for everybody to listen to is, is personal stuff. A lot of it. And, and I think it's great that you guys are, are able to do that and let us sort of into your life so that we get a look at what's really going on behind the relationships, because that's the stuff that's very difficult to talk about for all of us. Yeah, I appreciate that, Jim. And we, we do try to be honest with ourselves and with uh, other people. And that takes, I think a little bit of humility because what you want to do is project this image of everything's fine, everything's going great, sure. and it, it's not always. Um, but so far, we've landed on our feet. We just met up with uh, two other travelers yesterday. We met them on the Stalrat so many months ago, and then we met them again in Ushuaia, and they were traveling as a, as a, a trio of riders. And uh, yesterday, there was only two of them. And we said, hey, what happened to this other guy? And they were like, they were not happy and they had a huge fight, a huge blowout and they split up and it was ugly and uh, some harsh words were spoken, I think. Um, 
and that can happen to anybody. So it's not just like a romantic partners traveling together that have struggles. It's travel partners. It's stressful sometimes. It's tiring and personalities uh, clash. So it happens. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I'm curious to see what happens with uh, going back across the, the Darien Gap, how you, you sort that out and what happens between mm-hmm. now and then. And uh, you guys ride safe and we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Jim. Appreciate it, Jim. Thanks. Well, that was episode seven of our exclusive series, Southward Chronicles, with Jeremy Craker and Al West, now on their way home. We're going to check in again with them somewhere down the road. But meanwhile, if you want, you can follow them on their social media on Twitter and Instagram at Jeremy underscore Craker and l.on.wheels. Of course, those links are in the show notes for this episode at our website, adventureriderradio.com, as well as some photos from them for this piece. This episode has been brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com. Also, Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear at greenchiliadv.com. And Moto Breeze Chain Oilers at motobreeze.com. Hey, you do us a great favor. If anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime you see them anywhere, you mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and of course to you, as always, for listening to the show. We really appreciate it very much. If you um, haven't heard of our other show, we've got another show called ARR Raw. comes out monthly. You have to subscribe separately. It's found everywhere podcasts are found. Drop by our website to check out that show and this show with all the information, including the show notes for each episode at AdventureRiderRadio.com. And if you aren't doing it already, we need your support. This is built on a model of advertising and listener support to make the whole thing work. And we need you to jump in there. Don't sit back thinking everybody else is going to do it because you have to get up and do it. So drop by our website, click on the support button and see what we've got going there. Anything $10 or more gets you a sticker for your pen. Or anything $50 or more gets you a mention on our Raw show. And we need you there. So anyway, now it's time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. If you're not snowed in somewhere. My name is Jim Martin. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next week. My name is Karolis Melauskas from the Coldest Ride and you are listening to Adventure Ride Radio. (laughs) 